Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, March 14th through Saturday the 16th feature Riccardo Muti conducting a program of Rossini, the Voyage to Rand Overture, Vivaldi's Piccolo Concerto in C with piccolo player from the orchestra, Jennifer Gunn. She'll also be featured in the first Chicago Symphony Orchestra performances of Concerto in Three Movements by Ken Bensuf. After intermission, Beethoven's Symphony No. 2 and Wagner's Tannhäuser Overture. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Beethoven's Symphony No. 2, a work lasting about 34 minutes. A young man doesn't expect to go deaf, and so Beethoven was both surprised and frightened when he admitted to himself a musician's worst nightmare, that he was having trouble hearing. We can't be certain when he first acknowledged his cruel fate, but he apparently kept it a secret for a number of years. In June 1801, he finally confessed to his dear friend Franz Wegeler, who also happened to be a doctor, For almost two years, I have ceased to attend any social functions just because I find it impossible to say to people, I am deaf. By then, Beethoven was worried. He had already sought treatment from a number of doctors who prescribed hot and cold baths, olive oil, pills, and infusions to no avail. His ears continued to hum and buzz. Young Carl Czerny, on his first visit to Beethoven, probably in 1800, noticed with the visual quickness peculiar to children, as he later recalled, that he had cotton, which seemed to have been steeped in a yellowish liquid, in his ears. Czerny didn't think of it again until he, like much of the music world, heard rumors that Beethoven was hard of hearing. Beethoven found no relief until he turned to Dr. Johann Adam Schmidt, a professor of general pathology and therapy who seemed full of sympathy and optimism. Apparently, it was Dr. Schmidt who, among his other prescriptions, recommended that Beethoven abandon Vienna for rural Heiligenstadt. In late April of 1802, Beethoven left for the pastoral suburb that to this day is known for the document he wrote there some six months later. The Heiligenstadt Testament, as it has come to be called, was begun on October 6th and finished four days later. It's addressed to the composer's brothers, Karl and Johann. Although Beethoven's hearing would deteriorate considerably in later years, 1802 marked the moment of crisis. The Heiligenstadt Testament includes Beethoven's admission that his malady was permanent and incurable. He didn't fail to see the horrible irony of an infirmity in the one sense which ought to be more perfect in me than in others. This, surprisingly, is the background for Beethoven's Second Symphony, one of his most energetic, cheerful, and outgoing works. Beethoven surely had begun the D major symphony before he packed for Heiligenstadt that spring. He finished it there sometime that autumn in a setting very like the one he would later depict in the Pastoral Symphony. When his student, Ferdinand Ries, came to visit Beethoven, he called attention to a shepherd who was piping very agreeably in the woods on a flute made of a twig or elder. For half an hour, Beethoven could hear nothing, and though I assured him that it was the same with me, which was not the case, he became extremely quiet and morose. The D major symphony, like no other music written at the time, shows no sign of Beethoven's obvious despair. 
It's possible that Beethoven put the finishing touches on the confident, rollicking finale of his second symphony only days before he confessed thoughts of suicide in the letter to his brothers. After Beethoven returned to Vienna, his hearing and his spirits both unimproved, he began to make plans for a major concert of his music to be held on April 5, 1803, which would include not only his new symphony, but also the premieres of his third piano concerto and the oratorio, Christ on the Mount of Olives. That concert, conducted by the composer, achieved the combination, not unknown in our own time, of mixed reviews and a box office bonanza. Although Beethoven and his audience considered Christ on the Mount of Olives the main attraction, the Second Symphony would ultimately triumph. One reporter decided on the spot that the First Symphony is better than the latter one, although he did acknowledge that Beethoven seemed to be striving for the new and surprising. Around this time, Beethoven said to a friend, I am only a little satisfied with my previous works. From today, I will take a new path. That path was forged primarily by the daring venture of the Eroica Symphony. But the Second Symphony is already a sign of fresh things to come, and it's a great advance over the first. The influential Beethoven biographer, Maynard Sullivan, calls it both retrospective and prospective. It's still Haydn's orchestra, pairs of winds with horns, trumpets, timpani, and strings, and the layout of his last 12 symphonies, four movements with a slow introduction and a rondo finale that serve as Beethoven's starting point. This is music that Haydn would have understood but couldn't have written. Beethoven's slow introduction is a full 33 measures of powerful, expansive music, rich in the kind of dramatic gesture he would later exploit so famously. The ensuing Allegro con Brio crackles with a nervous energy and maintains an all-business edge unprecedented in symphonic music. The Larghetto, on the other hand, moves at a gracious and easy pace that's rare for this composer. Leisure wasn't to Beethoven's taste. Several years later, when he devised the misguided notion of arranging this symphony for piano trio, he added quasi andante to the Larghetto, marking to keep things moving. Instead of the minuet and trio combination third movement of the Haydn model, it served Beethoven well in his own first symphony, Beethoven now writes scherzo, forever changing the complexion of the standard symphonic design. Beethoven's scherzo, more compact than many of Haydn's minuets, is wildly playful with just enough weight to suggest the drama that's already present in Beethoven, even when he's playing games. The explosive finale is what we now call pure Beethoven, although audiences in 1803 didn't yet know what that meant and no doubt found it shocking and unpredictable with its cultish movement and energy and its uninhibited, nose-thumbing sense of humor. Program notes by Philip Pusher on Beethoven's Symphony No. 2. And now on to Wagner's Tannhäuser Overture, a work lasting about 14 minutes. Tannhäuser was once Wagner's most popular opera. At the time of his death, it was staged more often than any of his other works and a bigger box office draw than the later groundbreaking music dramas Tristan and Isolde, Die Meistersinger von Nürnberg, the Mastersingers of Nürnberg, Parsifal, and The Ring. 
It was the first of his operas produced in the United States in 1859, just 14 years after the Dresden world premiere, where audiences lapped up the music so eagerly, along with the beer and cakes served between acts, that the theater put on a Tannhäuser burlesque four months later to keep the crowds coming. It was music from Tannhäuser that had introduced Wagner's name to this country in 1852 when the opera's finale was presented in Boston and the following year when the overture was performed again in Boston. The overture quickly became a huge hit with the public and it was regularly played by bands as well as orchestras. In the years immediately following Wagner's death, the Tannhäuser Overture was the theme song of the packed Wagner Nights concert at Brighton Beach on Coney Island, where it was sometimes played ten or more times a season. Wagner took his subject from two separate legends, the tale of a crusading knight from Franconia who deserts Venus to make a pilgrimage to Rome, and the story of a song contest at the Wartburg. By combining them, and in the process inventing the love between Tannhäuser and Elizabeth, taking a character from each legend, Wagner created a powerful conflict between two worlds. The idea of Tannhäuser, torn between the allure of the sensual Venus and the pure spirituality of Elizabeth, was particularly intriguing to Wagner at the time because he was troubled by the hedonism and emptiness of modern life. Tannhäuser captures his yearning for more elevated and noble concerns instead of the immediately recognizable sensuality he found all around him. The opera vividly defines this polarity through two distinct musical styles, a landscape of conventional arias, duets, and marches centered in E-flat major for Elizabeth and the Pilgrims of the Wartburg, and a radically more advanced, unsettled music in E major for the exotic realm of Venus. The overture to Tannhäuser crystallizes the essence of the opera, but although it brilliantly introduces the two realms vying for Tannhäuser's soul, even Wagner couldn't juxtapose music in E-flat major and E major within a single curtain raiser, and so, for the only time in the opera, the Pilgrim's Noble March, the first music we hear, is played in E major, Venus's key borrowed for the purpose to make musical, if not dramatic, sense. Felix Mendelssohn first presented the overture to Tannhäuser as a concert piece in Leipzig in February 1846. Liszt arranged performances in Paris in 1850. Wagner conducted it himself at the famous 1853 concerts in Zurich that were underwritten by Otto Wesendonck in the innocent days before Otto's wife, Matilda, jeopardized her marriage to play a role in the creation of Tristan and Isolde. Wagner conducted it again in London in 1855, writing back to his first wife, Mina, that the Queen and Prince Albert got quite worked up during the Tannhäuser Overture. It quickly became one of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's signature scores. Theodore Thomas programmed it several times during the orchestra's first season in 1891 and 92 in Chicago, in Rockford on the orchestra's first run-out concert, as well as in Louisville, Indianapolis, and Minneapolis. Program notes by Philip Husher on Wagner's Tannhäuser Overture. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.